0: Welcome to the podcast series of the UNESCO Chair in Refugee Integration through Languages and the Arts. We bring you sounds to engage with you and invite you to think with us.
1: Welcome to the second part of this interview with Professor Alison Phipps on the New Scots Refugee Integration Strategy. My name is Dan Fisher. I'm a geographer with an interest in borders, asylum law and refugee integration. And just now I'm working at the University of Glasgow on a project called Scotland's New Scots Strategy Towards an International Exemplar of Best Practice in Refugee Integration, which has been funded by the European Union's Asylum, Migration and Integration Fund. With me today are Dr. Hiab Johannes, the Academic Coordinator of the Cultures for Sustainable and Inclusive Peace Network Plus Project, and Professor Alison Phipps, Holder of the UNESCO Chair in Refugee Integration through Languages and the Arts. And she's also Professor of Languages and Intercultural Studies at the University of Glasgow. Now, let's continue where we left off. Speaking of new models, Alison, we are now due for a third iteration of the new Scott strategy. And really, our, our, our question is kind of like, if you could have anything be in this new strategy, What's the main thing that you would like to see included or changed? So, I can see you have your thinking face on. So, in in the meantime, I might, I'll just keep rambling. Um, You know, some of the things I've heard mentioned are kind of potentially a separate theme on children or digital inclusion. But these are kind of additive themes. I don't know if that's the kind of thing you are hoping will be included or if there's a radical change that's needed.
2: Yeah. So I've got two answers to your question. One is pragmatic, very much within the realm of what I believe is possible at this moment in time. And the other one is, I suppose, more idealistic or or more intellectual and is very much about the kind of blue skies thinking elements that I, I see as absolutely critical to the kinds of work. That we might aspire to in future yeah so let's do the pragmatics first so pragmatically from where we are now given that this is where we are given that we've just had two years of a pandemic that has put on hold our ability to engage in mutual integrative work given that it has largely been about humanitarian aid given that the pandemic has indeed been a portal and has revealed the extent to which, you know, cultural work, linguistic work, digital work are not equally shared. And certainly, rights based work and access to the basics of life are not equally shared across the population in Scotland. Given that we have just come out of that, the learning that we have been able to do from that, I think, will inform New Scots 3. I think it will mean that the rights of children within the asylum and refugee processes, the right to digital inclusion, and even to Wi-Fi, might become much more prominent in this. I think we are likely to see an acknowledgement that really, whilst we talk a good talk on employability in Scotland around race and refugees, actually our track record is really quite poor, and we need to do better, that we have good intentions, but we lack the courage within our structures of employment, particularly the mainstream ones, particularly of those that are run by receiving communities, but receiving communities who are not of migrant background. So I would say that migrant background receiving communities tend to be pretty good at employment of refugees and asylum seekers with the right to work. However, they are also often communities that do not necessarily offer good working practices. That's not always the case, but it's certainly a concern. And I think we can do better on employment and we should do better on employment. I think largely the aspiration is there in health and education, but without paying greater attention to culture and language, it remains a bit of pie in the sky, a bit of window dressing and won't be deeply rooted into the way in which we do the work. I think in grassroots community, in those areas which are to me the kind of catalyzers for societal work, we see some absolutely beautiful work happening. I see it every day. I see things every day which are the best of integrating. I see people liberated and released from the prisons that are asylum, from the prisons that are neoliberal technocratic understandings of life. I see it in interactions on doorsteps. I see it in the small day-to-day interactions. And I see it in the absolute beauty of the things that I see people create. And I think it is absolutely breathtaking when it happens. You know, I see it in Eritrean restaurants and Turkish restaurants and Syrian restaurants. I see it in You know, the kinds of things that I know that the best of the UNESCO Ryla team are putting together. I see it in the amazing work that organizations like Safe in Scotland and Maryhill Integration Network and the Ubuntu Network and more and Refugee and Scottish Refugee Council and the Amal Project. And I mean, it goes on and on and all the many new organizations springing up all that incredible goodwill. And within it, there's often a lot of misguided mistakenness, a lot of stuff that people are are presuming and getting wrong. There's a lot of reinvention of the integrating one-way model. And yet over time, within a couple of years, you see the political community development education has gone on. So I think if possible, if New Scots 3 can Be based in a community development, a community education model, then we'll have really gone quite a long way. And if New Scots 3 can see every one of the themes, including new ones we might wish to incorporate, reporting to the individual cabinet secretaries rather than just the one for communities, then we will have a chance at inclusion across all the portfolios of Scottish life. And therefore, we will be far less at risk. Of the exclusions heab spoke of about the exclusion of or the two-tier system between those seeking asylum and those granted refugee status in Scottish society because the inclusion of the asylum seeker will be a, a required thought process for all policy making and will end up being a little bit like equality and diversity models and plans that were required to do for so many other categories. So a wee bit of legislation that just says these are protected categories, they need to be included in UENDI models, that would go a long way, neoliberally, technocratically, in policymaking terms to placing a duty on those in public life to do that work and to think about it. I'm seeing that happening in higher education at the moment for inclusion of refugees, largely as a result of the Ukrainian war. And the sudden identification with so many across middle class society, as well as working class society, although the working classes, I think, have been there for quite a long time because those seeking asylum and and having claimed refuge are often housed within their streets and their buildings. But I am seeing that starting, that understanding starting to become much more normative that inclusion is part and parcel and stretches to refugees. And that is not just a question of race. It is a question of sexuality, of religion, of gender, of the many categories of persecution. So it isn't just about talking about a racial justice strategy for Scotland. It's also a religious justice strategy. It's an LGBTQI justice strategy. It is a gender justice strategy. But also, and this is absolutely critical for me, and I think is you know, My real desire that this might also be part of a New Scots 3 is a cultural justice strategy that overall leads to a New Scots 3 that is about intercultural justice, that is about how we encounter one another on a day-to-day basis, forever and a day, with an ethic of care for one another, that is accountable as well under those more narrow Um, ways of being accountable to one another that are part of the law, or part of policy making frameworks, as well as accountability models that are about, and this is where I think the work of Bemis is really important, human rights education models, and justice models that are about us taking responsibility for our rights, and about all people, regardless of status, being responsibility for the work of integrating into a flourishing society. So that, pragmatically, is the best I think we can aim for at this moment in time. However, and this is where I become idealistic, I think in the context of climate change and climate crisis and in the wake of COP26, the need for loss and damage and the absolute catastrophe that is already visiting many people worldwide the imminent collapse of food chains and weather systems that will mean that food shortages and crisis is visited upon us all as a regular a regular thing then we need a radical rethink of how we live together as human beings on the planet that goes way beyond the models of human rights that we have in place at the moment and that we need to be able to live in ways which are far more resilient. And the models that I see and the ways of living that I see that are able to adapt to this come out largely from indigenous cultures and refugees who are largely displaced indigenous peoples in other places separated from their cultural land and language rights. And therefore, I think we need to return to thinking in or or move forward to thinking anew with those things that largely in the West we've been separated from. And that really brings me to the permaculture models that I've been working with of late that are about care for the land and the ways in which we describe the land when we observe it in language and culture. And that from those and using permaculture models, particularly those um, that came from David Holgram, which I think really fit well with this, but also Mollison, that are about the, the way in which we produce and we think with edges, with edge people, with marginals, with what is rich on the edges of society, which is how resilient pioneering species learn to care for one another through those mycorrhizal systems, the way that a dying tree actually gives life to many more species than it does whilst it's alive. And for us to actually understand that the death in life that is our planetary existence at the moment may actually have answers in it that we can most readily discover and enhance for ourselves in those members of the population who are most described by those categories that Agamben speaks of as bare life and that Mbembe speaks as as being um, recipients of necropolitics so that where there is the most death in a population within the asylum and refugee populations as well as some categories of others there are some categories I think that might also be seen to be recipients of necropolitics and the erasure of themselves in today's contemporary society but that is it is precisely there that we find the models of permaculture and permacultural justice nascent we found this in the death camps of the holocaust and in the holocaust survival that those who were able to embrace an eros against the thanatos the death wish that those that were unable to recover through embracing life in all its fullness were those who survived and those who became the most absolutely Astonishing members of society in those places where they arrived. And whilst the Holocaust was a one-off, it doesn't mean that there aren't models that we can't learn from or see replicating in similar yet different ways today. So yeah, permacultural justice is my ideal place to go. And I already see that at work, you know, pretty much all the very best of all of the community and uh, and integration projects have outdoor programmes and are working with community gardens and are wanting to enhance their yield and are wanting to work with models that are healing and sustaining. And so if I'm moving beyond the New Scots framework of what I think is pragmatically possible to a much more ideal life and desire that people might have a chance to live in the kind of wonderful worlds that I get to live in, then that would be my wish for everybody.
1: So we've spoken a lot about ecology and the fungal network. And these are kind of, yeah, I think an edge spaces. And these are really interesting concepts to be working with. But also we could think of them in a really practical sense, in the sense that we were talking about restorative justice and the need to restore something of what's been lost. And I think some of the projects that we've seen that are really successful right now are projects that are working in outdoor spaces and helping people to grow things. I suppose a a slight two points of it, is this something that you see as being really integral to this process of integration as a a verb? And does this link into what you were saying about having can we learn from that in terms of developing this this kind of ecological model
2: so there are many many reasons why i like the ecological model not least because i've always worked with it (laughs) so there's something in there about my own biases you know so i mean even just in my own intellectual history my phd was on open air community theater that happened in the out of doors Where, you know, we would have problems with Pine Martins nesting in the costume wardrobe and where performances would be interrupted by thunderstorms or sunstroke, I mean, either way. But where the theatre was also the place of life out of doors. I think COVID has also shown us the power of the outdoors, the importance of the outdoors for our own health and well-being, not just in terms of the virus, but also just in terms of it being good for folk to be outside. And I've thought regularly through my intellectual work with ecological paradigms or environmental paradigms. been really influenced by Tim Ingold's work on this, but not just. I did some work with Glenn Levine on on, uh, human ecological language pedagogy. So I've always really been trying to think with these kinds of models that are, as I'm discovering more and more at the moment, very much rooted in ideas of permaculture. But permaculture is also rooted in ideas of the edge. And I think the other common intellectual theme in my work has been the liminal. I was really, really taken up with Victor Turner's work on theatre and liminality and the, the liminal and the liminoid, building on Van Genup's theories of rite of passage. And I just see this work that says, you know, human beings are wildly different and divergent, and yet at one and the same time, we share some really interesting stuff we might not share how we express it but we are born we eat we breathe we die we make we create you know we play we find ways of making the 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 aspects of life that are dull as ditch water interesting through humor and joke and repartee and wit and that all of that seems to be part and parcel of who we are as human beings and therefore, whilst I would never want to say there is some kind of universal framework we can all fit into, I would want to say there are some things that are common touch points that we can find and discover interculturally together. And therefore, I find these ideas ecologically of the kind of edge spaces that change and develop over time and might eventually not be edge spaces any longer, might produce their own new edge spaces might constantly be evolving. So a little bit like, so under permaculture, if you have raspberries in your garden, you don't keep your raspberries chained up as I do in a raspberry frame that is a set of borders. Actually, the thing that's really good for raspberries is that they get to wander around your plot a wee bit and that they have this little hook that they grow on the end of them if they grow tall enough. And they use that to hook into the canopy of the trees above them so that they can grow higher up. And that means that they produce more yield and everybody benefits, including the tree, which apparently then gets more pollinators and more visitors, and there's more possibility of more life around it. And so I kind of see something, there's something in me that is modestly anarchic intellectually, but also to a certain extent a little bit laissez fair but with a kind, firm hand around certain thugs, um, I suppose, which is both a horticultural metaphor, you know, too many slugs and you're not going to have any courgettes, too much bindweed and you're not going to have any other climbers, too much ground elder, and honestly, you're going to choke out the roots of your raspberries. But actually finding a way in which you can harmonise this through minimum effort, which will maximise yield, is... Yes, absolutely. A real description of what it's like to garden in a forest or to have a forest gardening metaphor, part of a permaculture paradigm. But it's also a metaphor for cultural work and for how you might work culturally with edge communities like a community of refugees and like the many different experiences you'll have and the language ecologies and the cultural ecologies and the different ways of living and the different ways of doing things. And I remember just maybe as an example of that, just you know, sitting on a train in Germany in a little compartment. And I was on my own. And I was quite enjoying being on my own. And, you know, so I was in my own little monoculture on a German train. And I was knitting. And a woman came in and she said, as she opened the door, in the very polite greeting way that Germans do, ist hier noch frei, is there a place here? So I said, Ja klar, kommen Sie rein, yes, of course. Come in. And she sat down. And she said, Ach, Sie strichen. and you know, oh, you're knitting. And I was like, yeah. And so we ended up in conversation around a third term, which often happens when you've got something else around which you can, you can speak to people. And it's a kind of politeness, kindness. And she got her own knitting out and we started knitting. And then after really quite a long conversation where I was unbelievably proud of the fact that I was passing in German with my accent and my ability to speak fluently about knitting, she said to me, gosh, you're knitting in a really unusual way. I've not seen anybody knit like that in Germany before, at which point my cover was blown, not because of my accent, not because of my ability to look and sound like a German, not about the fact that I was in Germany having this conversation with all of these things, but because of the technique that I was using that my grandmother had taught me in Blackburn for knitting. And I just laughed and I just confessed that whole story about you know here I am a bit of an imposter able to live really well in your habitat able even to thrive as I do in Germany in your habitat and yet there are things about me that come from somewhere else somewhere else in this garden and I think you know there's something about being able to live with that as a normal thing rather than something that you're constantly having to give an account of that for me is just about those diversities. And as a result of that conversation, I learned to cast on in German and she learned to cast on in the way that my grandma Blackburn taught me. And both of us had more to ourselves as a result of that conversation than we would have had without it. So I see it as additive. I see it as, you know, greater yield. I see it as more possibilities in the world, not about a fight in a train carriage over which is the right way to cast on. And I know it's a trivial example, but it does stand in, I think, very much for the kinds of, you know, the things we see in warmongering versus the kinds of peace building approaches that I've lived with all of my life.
1: Yeah, thanks, Alison. I, I think I really take your point about ending that conversation with both of you having learned something, having taken more together from this. And I think that. Going back to talking about integration being multi directional, then it's also about being open to change, being open to difference, uh, rather than insisting on one particular way of doing things. But I I know that here there's burning to ask another question, so go for it here. Thank you, Dan.
0: Yeah. The openness, the non-exclusiveness, that's what I, I prefer to use instead of using inclusion, because inclusion by very definition is also exclusion. So I always say like non-exclusion is much better word, but I don't know if it is or not. Yeah, I am going to ask you, you earlier you mentioned it about this idea that the, the borders and nationality and borders bill, Alison, and talking about rights-based systems of integration, people seeking asylum are rendered inadmissible under these laws basically means they are denied their very right to seek asylum under the legislation and they're also subjected to forced removal to other countries to offshore detention centers like Rwanda and other places. How effective do you think is the rights-based integration models when people seeking asylum do not even have the very right to seek asylum?
2: Yeah so they're not I mean they're not effective because they're not um, non-exclusionary and Certainly in this country at the moment, we are seeing what it means to no longer be able to live confidently, safely and securely under the always partial framework that is the rule of law. So I think it's really clear to me at the moment that we are not, certainly for those people who are part of the processes of asylum and even refugee status, even those who are to the third generation, members of a a migrant household, that we're no longer seeing the protection of rights equally across society. And therefore, we are seeing the curtailment of liberties of those people. So it's perfectly clear to me that we can no longer speak about the rule of law being sufficient in this country for the protection of those rights. And therefore, the rights-based frameworks have been shown to be problematic. They're all we've got we need to keep trying to claw back the space i think i haven't got a better alternative at the moment to this other than the kind of you know living in these two worlds at one and the same time but i think the critique absolutely stands you know we we do not we we are not able currently those of us who have any degree of migrancy within our backgrounds in the uk to enjoy full protection of the law
1: uh <laughs> feel like that was a very sobering, <laughs> sobering moment. So we spoke, I think it's funny about talking about blue sky thinking in terms of the new Scott strategy and we've previously spoken about other options and we've spoken about the opportunity to have refugee integration be part of primary legislation in Scotland. And originally, I kind of thought of that in a kind of blue skies thinking type way until I realized recently that this is something that other countries have done. So Finland, for example, has both primary legislation that is immigration focused in terms of border control, but also has primary legislation focused specifically on integration. And I was just wondering if this is something that Do you think that could happen in Scotland? And if so, how would this, could this have any kind of, you know, Scotland is in this interesting and tricky situation where we have the UK government uh, still has control. Not everything has been devolved to Scotland, but integration could to a certain extent be included in primary legislation. Is this something that can be explored or is this two blue skies for blue
2: sky thinking. I think it's necessary at the moment, given everything we've just been saying about the rule of law. So one remedy for the exclusion of people from the rule of law is to pass primary legislation in a devolved area that includes people and includes those groups that have been excluded by other rules of law. It's tricky, it's difficult, it's a nightmare for the civil servants to think their way through, not least given that... You know, the gloves are off with regard to the devolved settlement and reserved matters at present between the UK and and Scottish governments. And I think I think that's a it's a very tricky situation. I mean, you know, we don't particularly want to risk the Westminster government basically passing primary legislation that takes away and strips away all the rights from everybody in Scotland. And there is a danger of that, I think, at present, as there is of pretty much all rights being stripped from citizens within the UK at present. And we wouldn't want it to be the case that it was the struggle for the rights of asylum seekers that led to that. That's a really heavy burden for a group to have laid upon them. However... It is a remedy. It would be a way forward for there to be, if there are areas where we can pass this into primary legislation, which I think we could in the areas of care, although those are matters for lawyers. So care of migrants is a devolved matter. Can we devolve the care of asylum seekers as migrants? Yes, we can. Do we? Yes, we do. Does the Scottish government have to pay for that? Yes, it does. Therefore, can we pass into primary legislation the protection of those people within those categories of care? It wouldn't protect from immigration injustice, but it would be a start and it would You know, rather like the passing of the Gaelic Language Act and the requirement of a duty on all public institutions to produce their Gaelic language plans. Similarly, the passing of an act that required public institutions to publish their plans and to be held account to it. Because the key to all of this isn't the legislation, it's the accountability. So the issue we've got at the moment with the Refugee Convention is that, you know, Australia and the UK are blithely breaking the spirit and the letter of international law. And that there, there was no obvious redress. There's no kicking out of the UK from the UN Security Council, for example, which would be a redress. It might not be the right one, but it would be one. There is nothing that happens other than us being a bit of a laughing stock. And many of us needing to speak about this in public. So I think, you know, whether a rights or responsibilities, but also whether rights, there is a requirement for the process of justice to be seen to be done. And that requires judges, that requires an infrastructure and that requires the work. And that's what I'm not seeing around this. It is, and certainly around the area of integration. And you said, you know, let rip Alison, so I will do, you know, The work of doing integration in Scottish society is voluntary work. It is undertaken as an extra to their paid employment or their voluntary work by those who are working in different areas, be it educational language or culture or the refugee sector or wherever it is, by coming together in a committee to write these policy documents. The work of chairing convening the New Scots Refugee Integration Policy Group is not like convening the Scottish Oil or the Scottish Economy Groups. There is no payment for it. It is a voluntary duty that I undertake in my spare time and with the sanction of my employer. So there are two dimensions to that that are very different from a remunerated position as the chair of a board. This is a non-remunerated position as the voluntary chair of a board sanctioned by an institution that is an employer. And if uh, my employer decides that basically it wants me to do other stuff, it can take me off that voluntary work. So I think there are a number of ways in which even the governance of New Scots is rendered precarious by that. It's always beg, borrow and steal. It's always cajole and ask. It's always nice people to death in order to get a favour. It's always voluntary work. It requires a, a mode of supplication on the part of the convener that is exhausting. And it requires a degree of intercultural nuance about how to do supplication to civil servants, to public servants, to third sector, to other migrants. That is a diplomatic act that honestly would defy many of the most seasoned diplomats in the country in terms of what is actually required to try and get even the, the smallest amounts of consensus and work done given the complexity. You know that said, it's still wonderful work and it's still worth, work worth doing, but it requires all of our participatory tools and all of our creative abilities to try and draw this together. And I think in that sense it also replicates these new areas of methodological research within social sciences and within the arts to that matter. So yeah, I think you know it's it's not pie in the sky, but it, Your question really shines a light on what what the structural inequalities are within this work. And yeah, we're talking a lot about bringing people in with lived experience to those categories. But honestly, there is no point unless there's remuneration. Now, how on earth can we ask people who are having to work 90 hours a week on three different shifts, even to earn enough to be able to pay their fuel bills as they begin life again and send money back home to people who are in an even more precarious position if we don't put in place the means of being able to participate in society. And it's where I would sound a little like the communist manifesto, you know, to each according to their means, from each according to their abilities. But I'm also aware that that leads to a situation where it's the middle classes running the do-goodery in society. And that that is not the best way of doing it because it won't be the most diverse. It won't have the most perspectives and it will lead to a replication of what the middle classes think is normal. And what the middle classes think is normal is highly bizarre and very narrow.
0: Last question. Alison, sorry for taking so much of your time. Your work is hugely important, but it comes at a cost. You have dedicated your entire life in doing this work. How do you deal with physical, moral, and emotional fatigue?
2: This is going to sound really weird, but these days I don't get tired. This hasn't always been the case. I, too, have burnt out. I, too, have reached my emotional limits. I, too, have reached my limits in terms of intellectual capacity on many an occasion, And also in terms of the my own positionality within what we often will term, you know, white privilege, as if that's a useful category for thinking with when we can do so much better and which, you know, are are highly limited to in terms of what they're able to achieve. So how do I deal with this or how have I got to a point where I don't get tired anymore? There's something great about getting older and about being a grandmother, but I actually think there's something really important about knowing what you can change and what you can't. So what's mine to do. And some things are absolutely mine to do. And there's quite a lot on that list, but what's not mine to do. What I cannot affect where I will not be able to add something then really no point in wasting energy on it. And that even goes for things that I might want to change that are wrong that are not how things should be, be they on a micro scale or a macro scale, but where I'm literally just gonna be, you know, knocking myself out on a brick wall. So these days I don't do too much knocking myself out. I used to do quite a lot and I had all the scars to prove it. And these days I don't do as much. It's like, nah, we're not gonna manage this. So. Either how do we go around it? So it's always a question of conflict transformation or barrier transformation. And usually the way around is far more interesting than the way through. So that gives me energy because things that are interesting gives me energy. I also have found that I found myself really irritated, permanently irritated by people telling me to have a rest, chill out, have a glass of wine, put your feet up, you know, do a bit of nothing, because (laughs) none of that is something that I find personally appealing. But also if I do it, I find myself in danger of tipping over towards inertia, amnesia, boredom, even mild depression quite easily now I don't tend towards depression even though the state of the world ought to mean that I did and what I've what I see people doing to others ought to mean that I did but actually I am hugely energized by being involved in the process of making life and creating life in all its fullness be that from gardening digging my allotment knitting making little notebooks being you know, on a playground with my grandkids chatting over the hedge with my neighbours, baking bread, cooking. I mean, all of these things, which are just kind of normal life skills, fill me literally with joy and delight. And again, that hasn't always been the case that I would love to scrub a kitchen floor. But honestly, these days, I quite like getting down on my hands and feet and find it really satisfying because you can see what you've done. And it's all a kind of human antidote to these politics of death, the necropolitics that are insane literally absurd to the point of utter unbelievability that we are living in within the home office processes that are part and parcel of our everyday lives the stories people will bring to us and also similar policies and procedures that we find within um, higher education as well you know there are so many times when my head's just exploding but I find the thing that brings me real relief in all of this is laughter. And I used to tip towards lamentation. I'm a poet of lament. I would write lamentation. This would be a way of turning what I experienced emotionally as draining into, oh, my heart, And no one has suffered as I have suffered. And now I just laugh at myself in that. And it doesn't mean I'm no longer a poet of lamentation. and not actually quite a good one. But it does mean that I just, I delight in the ridiculous and I delight in the power of laughter to transform anything and to be its own almost source of resurrection of new life of the, you know, laughter. Somehow my friend Kathy speaks about laughter as kind of the, the bursting of new life into the world of the kind of the defying of the absurd of the bringing into being something that you could never have believed could have existed. And I, you know, I see this in the work that we do at the chronic center. I mean, it's just, I just come off every single one of the meetings we have up there. here, absolutely enlivened and enjoyed enjoyed by the people around me. So the enjoying of me, the end laughing of me, if you like by others. And I find that those kinds of moments where we're enjoyed and raptured and and delighted and languaged and winded by the processes of life and aired you know all of these kind of almost moderately passive processes that give us new life Enfused would be another one of those words you know poetically those are the those are the antidotes to it and I suppose Ian, this is really letting you into the the basement of my mind but I have clear disciplines on my life. So, you know, I I have things I do regularly that are part of the weekly structure or the daily structure of my life. I have to do 20 minutes, really quite hard exercise every day to keep myself fit and healthy, whether it be press-ups or hip dips or whatever it might be, but I have to do that. And that's the first thing. And I have to spend a couple of hours really just making sure I, I see what the world is doing to itself. Through the news feeds, that I'm able to think with those, that I'm not unplugged from it, the reverse, that I'm actually deeply plugged into it and into the bits that I've chosen for myself and engaged with that. And I have to spend a bit of time learning something new, be it a craft, be it a new stitch, be it a new language, be it a new remedy, recipe, gardening technique. You know, I have to be learning, be it, you know, even just reading articles or thinking. And then there need to be these points of enjoyment. And if all I do is spend my life around miserable lawyers and policymakers who just are so burnt out and exhausted, then I can't continue myself. And I won't be fun to be around either. And therefore, none of the work that is so exuberant will come out of what it is we're trying to do. So those are the disciplines and frameworks that I am religious in keeping. And I would say almost are, and, and this is where it sort of dips into the My life as a member of the Iona community where I live by a rule of life that is a rule of justice and peace and the integrity of creation and a commitment to nonviolence as far as possible and to accountability. And I've lived by those rules of life for choosing them freely every year for the last 20 years, 25 years nearly. And I find them to be not so much that it's me keeping the rules, but the rule keeps me. It enrules me. It enables me. gives me a structure and people around me who are wiser and older and have seen it all before who will laugh at me gently and sit with me and wipe my tears and you know mop up my grazed knees and who've seen me through the worst of my days and who do not in any way put me on a pedestal or want of me anything more than just me being Alison as a human being And I think that that quality of love, which is what I see it as being, you know, what Ferrari writes about and what Bell Hooks writes about, and, you know, what we find in some of Martha Nussbaum's work on love's knowledge, that quality of a kind of shared understanding that can hold you and is strong enough not to let you fall, that means I do not reach an end point. That means I not only can keep going, but can keep going with a lot of a lot of joy and excitement and happiness and i know that the well is not running dry because the well is constantly being fed by these fresh streams of quite life-giving water from people and from the more than human world that just constantly delights me and therefore i don't need a lot of time for me time where i numb out with a box set i can numb out with a box set really easily and i will do it at times you know particularly if i'm ill but you know i can find I can find myself renewed and restored by five minutes sitting in absolute perfect silence by my pond in the garden, watching the tadpoles and noticing that there is a little bit more pondweed than there was, and that can give me what I need for the next thing, and I can find myself restored by you know just being brought to tears by something beautiful or something painful and acknowledging it and being honest about it and then letting it settle. And I think so much of that, Hiyab is about just growing older and knowing yourself. And kind of, I suppose there's a thing that Thich Nhat Hanh, the Buddhist scholar brings about where he says, I think it's from him, but he's like, you know, as you get older, you know, the thing about having rules is that you need to know how to break them so that you won't hurt people in breaking them so it's not so much having rigid frameworks but that that they can be expandable or move in and out a bit more like the breath of a ribcage yeah but mostly it's my garden (laughs) and my family obviously
0: thank you
1: I really want to sit by that pond and watch the tadpoles now. Come round, come round.
2: They're amazing. They're really big at the moment. They're about to grow legs.
1: Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to know more about the New Scots Refugee Integration Delivery Project, then please keep an eye on our website where we'll be publishing some of our findings. For the full show notes, please head over to the Sounds of Integration website. Have an excellent day.
0: Thank you for listening to the podcast of the UNESCO Chair in Refugee Integration Through Languages and Arts, a podcast series to make you think. More information about work can be found on the website of the University of Glasgow www.gla.ac.uk. Thank you very much.